The Missing Piece, Part 1. Welcome to the Ponder New Podcast. I'm Pastor Rob Myalis, and in this podcast, we're going to consider the missing piece of the manger. And uh, what I mean is that, well, this whole Advent, we're looking at the manger scene and thinking about um, the peace of God that comes to us in Jesus Christ, and then reflecting on the different pieces of the manger and what they may uh, say about God's peace and how they might bring us God's peace. But this week, I want to invite us to um, consider the the pieces of the manger that maybe aren't in the standard uh, kit of Mary, Joseph, and and Jesus. And I'm curious to sort of probe your imagination of uh, who else is in in your manger scene. So without further ado, let's get pondering. In those days, a decree went out from Emperor Augustus that all the world should be registered. This was the first registration and was taken while Quirinius was governor of Syria. All went to their own towns to be registered. Joseph also went from the town of Nazareth in Galilee to Judea to the city of David called Bethlehem because he was descended from the house and family of David. He went to be registered with Mary, to whom he was engaged and who was expecting a child. While they were there, the time came for her to deliver her child, and she gave birth to a firstborn son and wrapped him in bands of cloth and laid him in a manger because there was no place for them in the inn. When you think of the manger and the Christmas story, what pieces do you want there to be? Like, if, you know, if I were to say draw it or build it, if you were good enough, um, you know, what, what pieces would you include in your story? My, my sense is that most of us would probably include Jesus, Mary, Joseph, um, probably shepherds, an angel, maybe wise men or magi. I mean, there, there might be some, but, but again, I'm curious what, what pieces would you consider to be essential, but, but not even just essential. Like what, what pieces would you, would you put there? This Advent, we take time during each worship service to put another piece in our manger scene, ultimately building up to putting Jesus in on Christmas Eve. But um, the Sunday school classes actually help us at one of our services. And they do a little kind of acting out a part of the Christmas story involving that part of the manger scene, and then they put it in the manger scene. Uh, and the week that we <laughs> uh, were focusing on Angel and, and Mary and the um, what's called the Annunciation, where she it is announced that she's going to have a child, and she uh, accepts this role. Uh, in the Bible, according to Luke, there is one angel who comes. But we have a lot of kids in that grade, so suddenly there was an angel host appearing, a large number of angels, and uh, they all looked really stinking cute. <laughs> and and I, so I'm not, I'm not complaining about that. I'm, I'm just smiling because I think that for most of us, we've seen a lot of manger scenes in our life. We've probably uh, even been a part of various Christmas pageants um, at our churches, and maybe even if you're old enough at your schools, uh, where, you know, there, again, there's all sorts of, of 
of pieces and they're trying to make room for everybody. And so suddenly, you know, there's a your uh, your barkeep number two at the inn where there is no room or something. I'm curious, again, which of you have ever played uh, parts that you were pretty sure weren't in the original uh, biblical story. Uh, for me, one of the um, pieces that that I uh, would put in in there, at least at this point in my life, if I were to add something that wasn't part of the biblical story, typically, or I, I haven't, I, as I read it, it's not there. Uh, but I'm, I'm pretty confident that there was a midwife, that there was some sort of doula or somebody who was willing to help Mary birth uh, Jesus. And I say that in part uh, out of biblical uh, grounds that very early on in the Bible, and in, in actually all the way back in the book of Exodus, uh, when the uh, Hebrew or Jewish people are in, um, are in Egypt and they're building the pyramids, the, um, the Pharaoh wants to eliminate the threat of the Jews, and so he seeks to kill um, their babies, and the midwives protect the babies. They thwart Pharaoh's plans. So there's a long tradition of midwives within Jewish culture. Now, the second thing is that a lot of times we imagine that uh, the inn was full, meaning a hotel had no lodging or no vacancy because there were so many guests in town for the, for the census. And that, that could be the case. Um, but that, that word there has a, has a couple meanings, and it, it may actually simply mean that the living quarters where people would have normally stayed was full, and nobody sort of wanted this pregnant woman to uh, or be trying to fall asleep in the same room as a pregnant woman. Um, so they stuck her downstairs in these two-level houses where the humans slept up top and the animals slept in the bottom, and they had her go down in the bottom. Um, whether or not that's what Luke is describing, um, it does point towards the reality that Joseph is returning somehow to his ancestral home. So he's got to know somebody there. Right? He, he somehow has connections there. His name should have been on the register there. And so if, if they have this, um, so if he's going back to his hometown, you assume that he's got to have some family who are there. And it's hard to imagine that there wouldn't have been some aunt, some second cousin, some third cousin thrice removed, or somebody who was related. And again, in those days, people often had a much broader sense of family um, beyond the nuclear family, wouldn't have had some obligation to care for this, this woman who was pregnant. So um, I, I want to make the case that uh, there was somebody who had compassion on Mary and um, that, that God um, equips those whom God has called and that, and that God sends somebody to, to be with, with Mary. Well, I want to give you permission to, to have this kind of imagination around the Christmas story. And first of all, I think we can have this imagination because it, it's actually a really good way to get into the Bible. As St. Ignatius of Loyola uh, 
when he was starting what would historically be called the Counter-Reformation or the rise of the Jesuits um, within the Roman Catholic Church, he was really uh, focusing, or one of the things he taught was this way of just kind of imagining yourself in Scripture and allowing yourself, like, what do you see and, and what do you hear and what do you smell? And to kind of play around with that. And it's just a really powerful and beautiful way to get into a story. Um, you know, over the years, I've done lots of exercises with confirmation kids where I have them retell a biblical story and, you know, in modern par, you know, kind of modern times, or even just act it out so the kids kind of get into the story, start to think, what were the characters? How have they been inflecting the words? that they were saying, or even what other words in the dialogue seemed to be missing and would, would need to be said in order for this to kind of work or make sense. And so I think as an exercise, it's a beautiful thing for us to just get into the story. And and I think at Christmas, that's why manger scenes, whether they're in the house or more elaborate at churches or, or other displays or are so helpful for us just to kind of stir what we might call a, a biblical imagination, a sense of, of again, being a part of, of God's story or, or finding, finding um, yeah, find, yeah, just exploring and just kind of thinking through what, what this might have actually been like. I believe that we can find a tremendous amount of peace by imagining the scene that Luke and even Matthew create of the birth of Jesus, especially Luke's uh, version with uh, the manger and the inn and uh, the shepherds and so forth. There's something, again, his writing just draws us in. But I want to suggest there's a deeper reason why we can give ourselves permission to imagine ourselves with, within Scripture. But I feel a bit of a need to justify um, this in part because I need to sort of set up the straw man or like why this would be a problem. And why it's a problem is that when we allow ourselves to imagine Scripture, we are going to take with us our own sense of culture and our own sense of, of who we are and our own experiences that may be very foreign to those who were in the original story. So, for example, this uh, one Advent crash set that we had as kids was from Germany. And uh, they had this night watchman that had a lantern. And, uh, you know, fine, there were 24 pieces for 24 days of Advent, so they had to, you know, kind of have their imagination, exactly what I'm sort of encouraging us to do. But, you know, I can't imagine that there were... Um, the lanterns uh, looked like this in the first century. Um, it's funny that, like, of all the pieces of this crash set, the one that I remember the most is the like the one that didn't exist in the Bible, the Night Watchman. Um, you know, I'm I'm pretty sure it was set up for a candle uh, to be put in this, you know, this kind of lantern, and you know, candles wouldn't have. Anyway, so it's likely anachronistic. In the first century, there might have been a gatekeeper or other things. I mean, who knows? Maybe there was a Night Watchman. But the point of this is to say that. We always are going to be reading our, our own sort of um, what our own culture is going to be read into things. Or, you know, it's hard for me to unentangle my own experience of being a, an expecting father um, in my own life from the experience now of, of Joseph and, and Mary and thinking about, you know, what it's like for us to have given birth. And, and you know, so for me, again, I can't imagine uh, 
giving birth without somebody helping, whereas who knows, maybe in the first century, even though there were midwives, maybe it was very common for people to give birth alone with their husbands. Again, uh, we always bring ourselves and our experiences and our cultures into scripture. And this can be a problem that we can then start to impose upon the Bible our own sense of our own cultural norms rather than let the Bible kind of convict us or guide us. We can read into the text things that aren't right. And Islam, in its effort to avoid this, actually doesn't allow translations of the Quran. It, uh, because it acknowledges that translation, because language is so embedded with culture, is always going to be an interpretation and always going to sort of um, dirty the word uh, with uh, the sort of the cultural uh, inf infusions into the text. This sort of, um, yeah, this inevitable sort of uh, process of syncretism. And, uh, but, you know, I think Christianity is, is okay with that. I mean, linguistically, we know it's okay with it because Jesus and the, the people in, in the Bible were speaking Aramaic and we're reading it in Greek and then we're translating it in English to finally get it to us. So we know we've at least gone through two layers of culture to get at it. But more deeply, it's what happens in the incarnation. God chooses to become one of us. And so uh, God chooses to wear in Jesus Christ clothing of a particular time and place. God chooses to speak the languages of a particular time and place with the technology that belonged to a particular time and place. I imagine um, that Jesus actually, as a human, had certain spices that his palate was, was very used to and probably gave him a sense of, of comfort the way that we all have, you know, foods that are, you know, we're more used to, that are sort of our, our go-to our go-to foods, um, you know, certain spices that our palates are used to. Again, Jesus came in a particular time in a particular place and spoke a particular language and ate particular foods related to one sort of human culture. God allowed God's self to be infused with one set of cultural parameters. And then in the spreading of the gospel then, in the spreading of the gospel, then this message is going to be translated into all the world. And then this whole translation effort is God further giving permission for the incarnation to sort of go out then and for other cultures to receive and understand uh, Jesus Christ in their own language. And, and so, again, the, the way that the New Testament works with the Incarnation in Luke chapter 2 and then even Pentecost in Acts chapter 2, you just see a God who's willing to um, be embedded in a particular culture with a group of people and their shortcomings and, and their hopes and, and their fears. So we, we have permission to put ourselves into Scripture, risking importing our own baggage there, precisely because we have a God who becomes one of us and uh, allows God's self to be open to that sort of cultural uh, reality that we as humans live in. So what I'm getting at here is that the God who becomes one of us in human flesh and comes in a particular time in a particular place and yet allows that message then to be translated to other times and other places in people's own languages and own cultures is okay with us 
taking our place in stories and sort of imagining them. Okay, but are there any sort of limits to all this? Because, I, again, I'm offering this this whole, this whole series for thinking about the ways to find peace, and I do think one of the ways in which we find peace is to view ourselves as part of these stories. I think that can be an exercise that really can, can um, especially when it comes to the manger scene, I think that is where we find peace, is to imagine ourselves there at the birth and to behold Jesus and to hold him. But is there a limit to this? Like, is there a way in which we can um, not just bring the, maybe the beauty of our culture, but inherently our own idols and our own sort of self-justifications rather than what the Bible actually wants, which is often a word that is far more challenging, painful, yet also more beautiful than uh, we would like it to be or we can dare uh, to imagine. Well, I think this does point back to the fact that we um, have this tendency in ourselves. As John Calvin said, you know, the human mind is a factory or is always making idols. That's a risk. That's a risk we take. Um, And one of the ways, though, to mitigate against that is to listening to how other people imagine themselves in the story, to hear what other people see, and to dream a little bit. Yeah, not let it simply be our imagination, but our imaginations. And to go even further and to consider then what people from other times and in other cultures saw and understood and perceived and imagined within these stories Um, to see manger scenes from around the world and not just how Jesus looks with different color skin but to see what other pieces um, of uh, of the manger and the nativity are there what other characters take place how are people standing what is their posture what does it mean for them to worship within that culture and and then i think when we begin to do that and one of the cool things about life now is because the gospel has been translated into so many cultures and, and over so many uh, different times and places it is really possible to start to get a broader sense of the world's understanding of the sort of the human tribe's broad understanding of of this story and and our place in it so so rather than say okay don't do the exercise of imagining yourself i think rather it's it's more to say hey uh, god has somehow um, given these you know these tribes and cultures of the world god is okay with all them in fact in the book of revelation there are still all these different tribes and nations somehow that isn't squashed out yet they're brought into unity in christ and the way in which we can do that and experience that now is when we uh, contemplate and consider other manger scenes from around the world and see how they understand this uh, beautiful story. So, so your homework, uh, if you will, um, to put on your, your last-minute Christmas list is certainly to take some time and to ponder the manger scene uh, this, these, uh, these last uh, sort of weeks before Christmas and consider, you know, um, yeah, who was there? What did it look like? What did it smell like? What did it sound like? And then once you've done that, go online and Google, you know, some other culture, some other person, a tribe, time, and how they did the manger scene. And then ask a friend what, what they imagine, um, what part they would have wanted to play in, in the pageant tree of it all. And my sense in doing so, we, um, 
we not only uh, develop a sense of inner peace, but we develop a sense of peace uh, with people who are different than us as we, we sort of can find that, that bridge across time and across cultures in Christian faith of, uh, of this powerful story.